Greetings and welcome to the Animal Wellness Podcast, the official podcast of Animal Wellness Action. I'm your host, Joseph Grove. On this show, we talk about animals from the perspective of people who care about them and have the ability to improve their lives by influencing culture and supporting laws and regulations. To stay up to date with all of our news and information, subscribe to this podcast, receive our free newsletters and more, visit animalwellnessaction.org. Wayne Paselli and Marty Irby are with me again. Wayne is the president and founder of Animal Wellness Action. Marty is its executive director and its chief lobbyist in D.C. First thing we do whenever Marty's around is go to him for a legislative update. So, Marty, what the heck's going on on the Hill this week? Yes, thank you, Joseph. We've got a lot of good things going this week. We were able to get the Greyhound Protection Act introduced in the U.S. House of Representatives. We had three Republicans and three Democrats now leading that bill with Tony Cardenas being the lead Democrat in California and Mike Waltz down in Florida being the lead Republican. We've also gotten the FDA Modernization Act recently introduced, got a great new co-sponsor just yesterday, Tom Cole, a very staunch Republican from Oklahoma, who's very important in the caucus. And we believe that's really going to make a lot of headway for us. The Saving America's Forgotten Equines Act, SAFE Act, which was formerly known as the Safeguard American Food Exports Act, to bring an end to horse slaughter permanently on U.S. soil was reintroduced in the U.S. House by Congresswoman Jan Schakowsky from Illinois, Congressman Vern Buchanan from Florida. The name change was to steer the ship in a different direction. The former name had been brought into play some years back because the angle was that it was a food safety issue. We don't raise horses for food and their meat is contaminated by many of the drugs that we'll be discussing today on this podcast. So uh, there's a different play now going back to the horses themselves. Uh, we're looking forward to advancing that bill and hope that we'll soon see a Senate companion bill introduced by Bob Menendez from New Jersey and Lindsey Graham from South Carolina. And we have also recently seen the introduction of the Bear Protection Act that was introduced in the previous Congress uh, by Ted Lieu in the U.S. House and by John Kennedy in the U.S. Senate. That was a bill that passed two decades ago in the U.S. Senate by unanimous consent when then a very uh, young senator named Mitch McConnell was the leader of the bill, who's now the leader of his party in the upper chamber. And that bill would address the trade of bear bile and their gallbladders that the Chinese government has been promoting as a treatment for COVID-19 with no scientific basis. So we've got a lot of new bills out there. There are several more, and we're continuing to press forward. Wayne has come up with a slew of new legislation, I believe 10 total pieces of legislation that we're working on now, in addition to the bills that we've been working on for quite some time, the Big Cat Public Safety Act that would address the trade in big cats and the issue of cub petting. Just this week, Jeff Lowe, one of the stars of the Tiger King Netflix series with Carol Baskin, Joe Exotic, and Howard Baskin, uh, had his 68 big cats seized by the federal government, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. It's been all over the news. And we also saw the Shark Fin Trade Elimination Act uh, move through the U.S. Senate in the Commerce Committee. That bill has now been passed through the committee, included in a larger package of bills with all of the Democrats voting in support of it and the majority of the Republicans, I, I think, except three or four voting in support of it. So we feel good about that. And I think we're going to get a lot, we're going to get a lot done this year. It's going to be a good year and a good Congress in the 117th. 
Excellent. You mentioned that it was originally sponsored by a young Mitch McConnell. How how far back does that go? That's like early 1900s. I mean, if you got to get a young Mitch, <laughs> if you're going to get a young Mitch McConnell, dude, you got to go back a little bit. Well, I I say young in the sense that the average age in the U.S. Senate is uh, is quite up there. So I think it was about 20 years or so ago. Wayne, is that right? Yeah, it was 20. It was around 2000. Uh, Joe, I'm sure that your home state senator does not appreciate your placing him in a prehistoric sort of circumstance at his birth. I'm merely admiring uh, his longevity in a very difficult position. Now so, you're cooking. Now you're cooking as that, a politician. Very good. That, that's, all, that, that's all that was. But our guest is Joe Gorchek, and, and he is here to talk with Wayne and Marty, who are super savvy on this issue of horse doping and, and some of the challenges and scandals that seem to be collecting around not only Mr. Baffert, but around horse racing in general. Uh, Joe has worked in the horse racing industry throughout his entire adult life. He graduated from the University of Arizona's racetrack industry program back in 1981. Uh, he served as a horse racing uh, official in administrative, managerial, and regulatory positions throughout his career. Um, and um, I hope that wasn't Joe. Are you still there, Joe? Yeah. Okay. I'm still here. All right, very good. He spent 25 years as the executive director of the Indiana Horse Racing Commission, during which time uh, the state became known for its proactive and highly principled approach to racing regulations, such as those that pertain to anabolic steroids and cobalt. Uh, he left there and started his own LLC called the Horse Racing Integrity Consulting uh, Concern. So he, he runs that. He's a member of WO, the Water Hay Oats Alliance, and is on the Horse Racing Advisory Council for the Humane Society of, of the United States. So, Joe, I'm just going to start it off with a, a question that I think may be on the mind of a lot of our listeners and that's this. What what the hell's going on out there? Well, what's going on? I think I think what's going on is easy. How's it going to end? Is is really no one knows. You know what's going on is that uh, the Kentucky Derby winner winner Medina Spirit, uh, trained by Bob Baffert, came up positive for a drug called uh, bethamethasone. It's a corticosteroid, and it's a it's a legitimate therapeutic drug if used properly. Uh, one thing unusual about this uh, case is that typically the public would know nothing about the positive at this time, because what happens when a uh, a horse is tested after the race, uh, samples of his urine and his blood are sent to a, a laboratory. Uh, Kentucky's laboratory is a laboratory called Industrial uh, outside of Denver, Colorado. And they're the ones who call a positive test. What happens after they call a positive test is the trainer has a right to uh, have a split sample utilized by a referee laboratory. And until the referee laboratory makes a determination, and if that determination comes up positive, then and only then, okay, are the results uh, released to the public. And it's typically done by the Racing Commission. Uh, the Racing Commission uh, in Kentucky, and I think this, this is the same for most racing commissions across the country, although nothing is uniform in horse race regulation. They can't say anything about a positive test to anybody until after the split comes back confirmed. Mr. Baffert basically 
did something that he, he could do, even though the racing commission can't talk, he can talk as much as he wants, and he did. Uh, so the general public really knows about this positive test, what I would regard prematurely. Baffert put it out there. He didn't need to put it out there. He probably had his own reasons to put it out there. But we're all dealing with something that we normally don't deal with is, is, the, is the split sample going to come back positive? Because in almost all cases, we never even know there's a positive until afterwards. That's certainly a topic that's been discussed a lot in, in the news. Uh, well, not necessarily the split sample, but the fact of this positive result. Um, and of course, the horse was cleared to run in the Preakness. He came in third. What does this portend going forward, not only for the industry, but for, but for Mr. Baffert? As far as I know, Medina Spirit's not going to race in the Belmont. Uh, Bab Balfour has been uh, told by the New York Racing Association, with, which manages Belmont Park uh, Racecourse, along with Aqueduct and Saratoga, has uh, effectively barred him from participating in racing in New York City, including Saratoga, uh, temporarily until this matter is resolved. So... Uh, you know, Baffert can't go back to Kentucky now and can't go to New York. Uh, so he's, you know, he, he's pretty much stuck on an island as far as major racing jurisdictions at this point in time in the year because his home base is California. Joe, I, I wanted to just weigh in and say that, you know, if we look just at this incident and this one positive on this uh, steroid, uh, one can say, okay, well, this wasn't the most severe violation. There's an explanation that he attempted to provide. The problem is that this is just the latest saga in a long-running Baffert story about race day use of medications. And Baffert has been under so much scrutiny for those prior uh, positives when it comes to uh, race day drugging that he should have known better. If Baffert had been a very big actor five or 10 years ago and was doping horses and said, no, you know, I've turned the corner. I'm going to, you know, be very clean in this area. I'm going to run my horses on hay, oats, and water alone. Uh, then I think it's a different matter. Uh, he is talking a certain game when it comes to, to uh, uh, doping and no doping. He seemed to reluctantly endorse the Horse Racing Integrity and Safety Act late in the process. But, uh, you know, it, it's just a continuing set of violations. And I think that's the issue for animal wellness action is his, his, uh, his inability to steer clear of this, including in the highest profile races. I mean, he should have known what everybody in his barns was doing. And how could they not know that? even a, a, a topical medicine with that substance was going to, was going to threaten him in terms of uh, the integrity of the testing process. Well, Wayne, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, with respect to Churchill's Downs action, uh, I believe they took the appropriate action in barring him from entering uh, his horses at their racetrack. Having said that, when they issued the press release, they said it was a severe violation. 
in my mind, it's not a severe violation uh, for this particular horse with this particular drug. What is uh, aggravating about this whole incident uh, and the aggravating circumstances, which I really think were be behind the barring of Baffert. It's not because he got a positive test for corticosteroid. It's just that Mr. Baffert has gotten positive tests again and again and again and again and again, uh, many of them very recently. And there's a point in time when you say just no more. I mean, we're just not going to put up with this anymore. So if it was another trainer, okay, that didn't have the baggage of Mr. Baffert when it comes to positive tests, especially recent positive tests. And like you said, high profile races, you know, the, the, uh, the Arkansas Derby, the Kentucky Oaks, I mean, big races with big horses coming up positive, then this might not have been as big as it is, but it all goes back not only to Baffert, but it also go back to the way uh, U.S. racing has uh, an issue with drugs, uh, mainly because uh, they are so light on the penalties. There's no uh, overriding incentive to be super duper careful when it comes to administering drugs, even therapeutic medication, just because history has shown again and again and Baffert is is the poster boy for this, of a person getting multiple violations without any serious ramifications. Well, and I, I talked to, this is Wayne again, I talked to a good friend in the industry. I mean, a, a major, major player, a major reformer, uh, a person who deeply cares about horses. And the attitude there was, well, it hasn't been proved. He should have run in the Preakness. And I think it's this parsing that that occurs in the in the thoroughbred horse racing world. And I think that there's just a continuing set of excuses made for 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 folks who are serial violators. And Joe, I guess I toss it back to you, you know, from an animal wellness action uh, perspective as an animal welfare group, we hear and see and look at. Uh, lower grade tracks, and then we see the highest profile races turn this sort of thing up. It still appears that there are lots of trainers addicted to doping and that this is a larger cultural problem within the industry and that it's going to take not just the Horse Racing Integrity and Safety Act to turn this around, but active enforcement, uh, which means the United States enforcing the law, but it also means that tracks need to issue suspensions and fines and whatever authority they have to send a signal that this is not going to be tolerated. Otherwise, it's just going to be, you know, people continuing to try to game the system in one way or the other. What, what should happen here then? Let me ask you both this. Uh, you know, you can't bring the sources to Churchill Downs. Uh, looks like the Belmont's out. Uh, how much more severe does this need to be? not only for Mr. Baffert specifically, but for the industry generally for the point to be made? Well, for the industry generally, uh, I'll take that issue first, and then I can speak briefly on Baffert. With the industry in general, things aren't going to change in any significant way until uh, the federal legislation, uh, the Horse Racing 
Integrity and Safety Act kicks in, and then there's a be a paradigm shift, and not only the rules, but more importantly, the enforcement of the rules. Uh, you, you're not going to have 37 racing commissions start acting significantly differently than they have in the past. It's just it's just not going to happen. What we've seen happen is not the regulators taking action; it's the racetracks. Uh, and the regulator's hands are tied to some extent with Baffert because he has a license to race in those jurisdictions. And you typically can't take someone's license away, okay, unless you have, uh, unless you have a reason. And it's written in the rules of horse racing in that if you have a positive test, you have the right to have a split sample. And that's what Baffert's working on now, supposedly. Okay, so it's up for the racetracks to take to to take the bull by the horns and do what I think most of us would consider to be the right thing. And Churchill Downs has done it. Naira, the New York Racing Association, has done it. Pimlico didn't do it. Pimlico didn't do it. Uh, but there's some interesting dynamics with Pimlico is that they're owned by the Strana Group. Uh, which owns Santa Anita, which is Bob Baffert's main headquarters. So Pimlico is looking, I think, in my opinion, rather weak need and feckless and foolish because they didn't, uh, they, they, they didn't take the bull by the horns and do what we would think would be the right thing to protect the integrity sport and born Mr. Baffert. Now, they're going to have a second bite at the apple. Assuming that there is a split sample that's tested and assuming that split comes back positive, okay, then Stronach Group could, if they so desire, take action against Baffert. So I think that's going to be uh, something important to look at because all, all eyes are going to be on the Stronach Group if this sample, the split test positive. It can, if it confirms, everybody's going to be looking at the Stronach group and saying, well, what are you going to do now? I wanted to jump in and add something here just about what happened when Bob Baffert announced that his horse had tested positive for the beta methasone. He came out, had a press conference and said there was no way this horse had been given that drug, never treated this horse with that drug. He was basically being set up. It was cancel culture and the, the woke world we're living in that were after him. And then he made a big deal about it all across the television and the media. And then a couple of days later, he came back and he said, oh, wait, no. Well, actually, we found out this horse has been uh, given this ointment called Otomax applied to his skin. It's an antifungal to prevent and help treat a fungus that he had and uh, walked back what he had said. So it, it really made him look bad, I think, and his story didn't line up. I don't know exactly what happened. None of us probably ever will know exactly what happened. But in the fall prior to this incident, he publicly stated when another horse at the Kentucky Oaks was tested positive for the same drug, that he was going to implement new veterinary protocols, have a veterinarian overseeing everything that occurred with his horses. And in my opinion, he didn't, he didn't follow through. Uh, he admitted he didn't follow through. And basically, he just, you know, kind of swept that under the rug. No one realized it until this occurred. If someone like Bob Baffert, who's won the Triple Crown, the only trainer in 40 years to win it with multi-million dollar horses, 
isn't looking at everything that goes into that horse or on that horse, then they're not doing their job. And I have to say the journal times did an editorial the other day. Um, and, and I want to read this line from it. They said, amid all the chatter about cancel culture, we have found a winner of a dubious award, the most hollow and pathetic attempt to blame someone else for your actions talking about Bob Baffert. So everyone out there recognizes what this is. It's an attempt to blame others and not take responsibility for the actions. If you're the trainer, you're the person that's taking the horse up there. You're the one that has control over the horse. You're the one responsible. The question probably on the minds of a lot of folks is if, if someone of Baffert's stature can try to get away with this, what must be happening among trainers who aren't, aren't maybe under public scrutiny? Yeah. I mean, the answer is, of, of, of course, it's going on. Uh, you know, it, it goes on in, to different degrees uh, at different tracks within different states. You know, some states are better at regulating than others. Some have a almost a hands-off approach to regulation. Uh, but oftentimes it, it goes on with substances that the trainer or the veterinarian believes are undetectable. Uh, betamethasone isn't one of those. Everyone knows that betamethasone is tested for. And if you, if you give it to a horse too close to race time, it's going to result in a positive test. What would betamethasone do for the horse? What's the competitive advantage this particular substance would have given uh, Medina Spirit? Let me preface what I'm going to say by saying, I don't know what happened. Okay. And we may never know what happened. Okay. Having said that, uh, you know, there's something about this ointment story that just kind of rings hollow to me. If, a, if an ointment could cause a positive test like Baffert got, and maybe it did, but wouldn't you think we would have a rash of positives all over the place with this drug? I, I had, I had uh, listened to a, uh, a good uh, uh, exchange on the, the Pollock report where they had a veterinarian weigh in on this ointment with betamethasone. And her, her conclusion, and I'm paraphrasing as I don't remember it verbatim, but it was like, yeah, he could get a positive test if he was, if he was drinking it in bottles. Okay. But, but it, it usually doesn't pass the skin barrier. And, and, you know, and my thought is that if, if, if betamethasone and anointment could give you a positive test, then a whole lot of people would have that. I haven't heard that story. I, I haven't heard an ointment story with betamethasone, but it gets, it gets called for positive tests. It used to get called, called all the time. Because you inject it in the in the, the the joint of a horse, that's the that's the main re- way it's used on the racetrack. It's an injection. It wouldn't have a performance enhancing effect, in that it wouldn't make a horse go faster. It wouldn't speed up a horse. But what it could do, okay, it could uh, take a pre-existing condition and temporary. Uh, numb it, I wouldn't say numb it, but temporarily alleviate it from the horse so that a horse could run uh, w- w- without it being bothersome. So it, it has, in my mind, betamethasone, assuming it was injected and not in an ointment. Okay? It, it's more of a horse welfare issue than a you know, trying to fix a race, make the horse run faster issue. 
And it's a horse welfare issue because if you if you try to take discomfort away from the horse, I think pain is a good thing uh, in that. It, it tells you something's wrong. And if, and if something's painful, then you back off and you treat it properly and you give them rest and then you make the horse whole and sound and then you race them. But with beta-methasone being injected into a, a joint, if it was, then that's a horse welfare issue because a horse could break down. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then you got, you got a horse injured. You got a horse maybe dead. You got jockeys injured. You got jockeys maybe dead. You know, so it's, it's and I'm not saying that's what happened. I'm just saying that's how beta-methasone is typically used. Well, and it takes, I think it takes a lot of restraint if you're a trainer. You know, if you're uh, wanting to run your horse and all people in this industry strive to want to run their horses in triple crown races, you know, they're three-year-old races. And if you miss it, you miss it. And it really takes a lot for a trainer to say, hey, we're going to pull this horse out because there's a problem. And I think the historical response was, well, they're going to get away with it. You know, they're not going to detect it. The state rules are so weak that we're not going to cross that threshold. And in the off chance that we do get get, uh, found out, you're not going to get much of a penalty. And I mean, the whole thing with with Baffert and the Preakness, with the industry people I talked to, they said, well, he should have been allowed to run because that second test needs to come come to confirm it, but we may not get the results for months or even a year. So what's the point of the second test at at that point when it's all forgotten? I mean, the question is, why can't you do that second test quickly? Apparently he, his barn gets to decide or gets to have input on who the second testing um, uh, operator is. So I find the whole thing just really bizarre from a from an oversight perspective, and it's really biased in favor of the uh, of the trainer. It seems to me. You know, it could even get more bizarre than you than you than you suspect, because th- there's only a handful of laboratories, racing laboratories, who are competent enough to accept split samples, and most of those who accept split samples. Don't do that. They refuse to do it just because it's just a pain. Uh, the money they charge for a split sample doesn't uh, reflect all the, the the time and effort they need to put into the finding and any follow-up reports and testimony. See, when Baffert comes out and basically says, my horse got beta-methasone in the Kentucky Derby, he's alerting every laboratory okay, that, that might be called to say, would you accept this test? And if I was a laboratory and someone said, would you take a split sample on the Kentucky Derby? I would say no. I would say no in a heartbeat. Why would I? I'm gonna charge a thousand dollars, maybe more, maybe less. And it's gonna be a nightmare. Okay, after the, after the results are done, trying to justify them, uh, reports, testimony, going to court. Uh, so Baffert coming out this early in the process with that, might have skewed the mindset of the laboratories to even accept split samples. And the thing about it is the racing commission can't talk about anything about the split sample until it's done. So the only side we're going to hear from is Baffert. So I'm not even convinced the split has been sent out. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, you have this compressed schedule, two week intervals between the triple crown races and you have this, 
very confusing confirmation testing program with this incredibly long delay. And then the reason or the, the additional complication that you just meant to mention, Joe. And then, you know, you, you see how Pimlico and the state of Maryland responded versus Belmont and the state of New York. Like this is a very inconsistent set of responses here. And yeah. And I would leave the racing commissions out of it for now because I don't think it had anything to do with it. I don't think Maryland Racing Commission had, uh, well, they might have had some influence, but, but the, the regulators in Kentucky and the regulators in uh, New York, this wasn't their call. Uh, this, this, this just wasn't their call. It was a racetrack's call, and they did the right thing. So what happens if Churchill Downs, for example, uh, wants to take away the win. They have not done that yet. Medina well, Spirit is still the official winner of the Kentucky Derby still. Yeah, that, that's another misnomer out there. When, when Churchill issued the press release, it, it was probably one of the worst press releases I've seen by a racetrack uh, in, in my lifetime. To, to have a, a half-page press release have, have so many things that are just wrong or misstated. Uh, they left the impression that you know, they were going to uh, not declare Medina Spirit the winner if the test result from the split comes back positive. It's not their call. They don't have anything to say. They don't have anything to say about it. it that is the regulatory function. Churchill Downs has nothing to say with who gets the prize money. It's the regulators and only the regulators. Uh, they, they didn't say that in their press release. And in fact, if you read the press release, you would be inclined to believe that it's their call, but it's not their call. You know, I, uh, Joe, I, uh, Joseph, our host, since we have two Joes here, yeah. you know, I want to say that this is, this is a really interesting case. I think that, that uh, what we're seeing is the highest profile guy in the, in the whole world of horse racing, you know, is in this difficult personal situation, this difficult professional situation. And we're, seeing a lot of confusion within the industry on how to handle it, but more focus on the idea of addressing this problem in a proactive way, which I think is really an indicator on how the earth has moved within the horse racing industry, the thoroughbred industry in the last seven years as the Horse Racing Integrity and Safety Act has been debated. Now, now it's been passed. Uh, Marty and I, my colleague Marty Irby on this, on this call, um, on this podcast, you know, we've been talking and Marty has said, hey, we've got other things to do in addition to doping. We, we at Animal Wellness Action want to work on enforcement, that passing a law is, is alone insufficient in terms of our response. We've got to see the law enforced. But we also have other on-track and off-track issues that we've got to address. Whipping is one of them. Uh, this has come to light. It's, it's gotten additional scrutiny. Um, hitting the horse, you know, while the horse is, is uh, in full stride, uh, you know, someone described it, you know, if you were on the back of a sprinter and you were whacking him on the back or in the rear while he or she is trying to run a race, uh, that's a terrible distraction. And it's also just a bizarre behavior. We shouldn't come to accept this as the norm. And then we also have the issue of the disposition of poor performing horses or horses that are no longer wanted. And, you know, at some of the lower grade tracks, you know, the kill buyers showing up 
as we've seen in the past that in, in Charlestown in West Virginia, where the horses, you know, are on their way pretty quick after they fail uh, to win place or show and they uh, get loaded into a truck and they're sent to Canada or Mexico for slaughter. Uh, these are other problems that need to be addressed. And it's one of the things that we at Animal Wellness Action want to also have focus on in order to have more comprehensive reform, that doping is one big problem. Uh, we've been focused on it. Marty testified on the federal bill uh, uh, a year or two ago. I did it seven years ago. And Joe has been involved in this reform effort for many, many years as an industry insider. But we've got other issues uh, that also need to be addressed. So I think our focus on doping is very, very important in enforcement. But I also want to be sure that we, we as a nation, also address these other questions on horse racing. If there's a silver lining to the doping issue is that I'm finding, at least in my conversations with Louisvillians, you know, very close, of course, to Churchill Downs in a, in a community in which Bob Baffert's a household name, is that it provides an entree to talk about some of these other issues, you know, and talking about, uh, you know, the Derby, for example, just bringing up to folks the fact that some of these poor performing horses are, in fact, very quickly sold off. Uh, and shipped to slaughter, it, it's mind-boggling to people. They have no idea. But at least this conversation about doping is one way to get into some of the more serious, arguably, issues when you just described. I just wanted to add to our listeners out there, last fall we did a podcast with Monty Roberts, the man who listens to horses. We talked in-depth about the whipping issue and how there were scientific studies that even showed that horses run slower because of the use of the whip, I was down earlier this year at the track Wayne just mentioned in Charlestown, West Virginia, which is one of the worst tracks in the country if we're talking about welfare, safety, and the 10 horses that died at that track this year. So there is a raft of other issues that must be dealt with, must be addressed. The racing industry has really done a great job at stepping up and supporting the Horse Racing Integrity and Safety Act, but we've got to do more. And whipping is really something that I believe we can end in this country within the next five years. By the end of 2025, I asked some of our friends at the Jockey Club what they thought of that, and they thought that was a realistic goal as well, and we're going to keep pressing in that regard. We, we just had the Greyhound Protection Act introduced this week that Animal Wellness Action worked with a group called Great 2K USA, an outstanding national grassroots organization that is focused on greyhound welfare. And that is a ban on greyhound racing. There were 60 greyhound racing tracks uh, a little more than a generation ago in the United States. Now there are four. Uh, four are going to go to two because two of them have a definite timeline to close. And there's just one corporation that owns the, the two tracks, both in West Virginia, that do not have a time frame to close. That company, Delaware North, is neutral on the bill to ban greyhound racing. This is a gambling and food service company that doesn't really care uh, about greyhound racing, that doesn't really think that greyhound racing is an important part of its future business operations. And if the horse racing industry does not address these issues, as we have said, on doping, whipping, disposition of poor performing horses, and they're being sent to slaughter, you're going to see the animal welfare movement, which is increasingly powerful and prominent, drive this discussion. And that discussion is going to get more and more 
uh, built around the idea of ending horse racing. Uh, we have not at Animal Wellness Action called for an end to horse racing, but more and more groups are. And the more that there is this confusion about how they're handling things, the dilly-dallying on the issue of, of setting up rules and standards, uh, hemming and hawing about whipping or horse slaughter, uh, the more that the industry aggressively addresses these issues, the more uh, favor it will curry with the American public on these issues. And then they can defend the idea that this is a suitable way to interact with horses and treat them and that this sport has merit as a form of entertainment that doesn't leave too many animal casualties in its wake. And the greyhound racing debate and the fate and trajectory of the greyhound industry is a cautionary tale, it seems to me, for the horse racing industry. It can happen to the horse racing industry if it does not watch itself. The greyhound industry resisted reforms for years, and now you've got it essentially on its last legs. And uh, there's no way the greyhound racing industry can come out of this death spiral. No way at all. Joe, I'm going to turn it over to you for the, the last word. Grateful you've been with us. Take us out with uh, your final thoughts on this issue and everything that Wayne has said in addition. Well, uh, first off is uh, uh, I'm, a, I'm a believer that uh, the, the jockey should be allowed to carry a whip, but use it only for the protection of the horse and himself and other horses and other jockeys in the race. Uh, the whip uh, to be used for encouragement is something that was uh, acceptable to, let's say, previous generations, but shouldn't be acceptable moving forward. Uh, you're going to see... Uh, uh, in the next in the next few weeks, uh, Monmouth Park Open in New Jersey, and they just instituted uh, the strongest uh, whip regulation in the country. Uh, there's already talk about jockeys uh, boycotting that race meet, but it has to start somewhere. So uh, I think a lot of eyes are going to be on New Jersey with regard to whipping, because if it proves to be successful, then that just takes one of the uh, one of the uh, the arrows that the, the pro whipping faction has uh, out of its quiver, because if it if it's can be done in one jurisdiction uh, successfully, then it can be done in all jurisdictions successfully. And I'll just close on Baffert. Uh, on Baffert, uh, uh, we don't know what's going to happen. Uh, we don't know when it's going to happen. And uh, as uh, things uh, trickle in, there might be some. There might be some. Uh, uh, surprises along the way. All right. Well, we'll stay tuned for that. Uh, Joe Gorchak has been our, our guest, former head of the Indiana Racing Commission. He also has Horse Racing Integrity Consulting. Um, Joe, if people want to follow you, uh, do you do you tweet? Do you, do you are you on are you on the TikTok, Joe? Uh, no, I don't. I don't tweet. I don't TikTok. Have him call Marty. He knows my number. Yeah, Marty's on the t- <laughs> Marty's on the TikTok all the time. So. Uh, yeah. Marty's, Marty's, Marty's everywhere. There must be three or four <laughs> Marty's. I, I really, yeah. truly don't know. Well, same for Wayne. I don't know how they do everything they do in the time. We, we All three of us have 24 hours a day, and, and you look at their 24 hours, and it makes it seem like three or four days for me. So Marty's, a, nu- Marty's a nuisance to all of us. He's, a, he's just always in our face. <laughs> always. Yeah. 
<laughs> you can sleep when you die. That's when I'll sleep. So <laughs> there you go. All right. Very, very excellent. Um, and and thank you guys. Thank you so much to our listeners for tuning into the Animal Wellness Podcast. Uh, be sure to visit uh, animalwellnessaction.org for all of our news and information and to sign up for our news alerts. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter. And we invite you to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or Spotify. I'm your host, Joseph Grove, and we'll be back soon with another episode of the Animal Wellness Podcast. <laughs>